0: what you might want to say to us today, amen. All right, Super Bowl, how many people are rooting for the Eagles tonight? How many people are rooting against the Eagles tonight? It's either Eagles fans or anti-Eagles fans. That's really the two categories, right? Um, I want you to imagine a scenario. You don't have to be a football fan to to really catch this scenario, although if you have played team sports or if you've coached team sports, you might get it in in a greater way than someone else. Uh, Imagine it's halftime and the Eagles are down. Coach brings them in the locker room. He's giving them a pep talk. He's drawing on the whiteboard and one of the players raises his hand and says, Coach, 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 how's it looking for me to get MVP tonight? Can we, can we arrange some plays so that I stand out and that I have a better chance of getting the MVP? What do you think the coach would say? How do you think the coach would respond? What do you think he'd do? Maybe beat him up. <laughs> Tell him to stay in the locker room until he sobers up. Maybe bench him. We all know that we've played team sports or coached team sports, we know that the instant somebody becomes overly focused on getting MVP, on standing out, that is the same instant that they have become a liability to the team. They have become a liability, not just a distraction from the team's success, but a liability to the team's success, because to not be a team player in a sport that so requires interdependency makes you a liability. And the same is true in God's kingdom. The passage that we're going to look at today, Jesus is telling his boys, his closest followers, guys, 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 your hearts are off here. Your hearts are off. Some of them wanted to get MVP. They were in competition with each other. They wanted to get MVP in God's kingdom. And Jesus is like, that's not what my kingdom is about. They didn't understand. Jeff, my clicker isn't working. Can you turn me on there? They didn't understand that to be important in God's kingdom, to have the most significant impact for God's kingdom, we have to be people who do not need to be significant in this world. When we wanna be significant, when we wanna stand out, when we wanna get praise, that's when we become a liability for God's kingdom. The title for today is called Two Mamas Boys and Two Blind Men. No offense to the mamas in here, or the mamas boys in here. It's just two mama's boys and two blind men. These are two passages, two stories that seemingly don't even go together. But I think Matthew puts them together for a purpose. Something popped out to me this week. And I hope we can tie them together at the end of the message. But where we're at in this this story of Jesus is that he's about to head to Jerusalem. Next week we're going to look at his entry into Jerusalem. The triumphal entry. What is often celebrated on Palm Sunday... Uh, we're going to look at it next week, and throughout the Lent season, we're going to be looking at everything in Jesus, the last week of Jesus' life. Everything that we look at over the next six, seven weeks before Easter is the last few days of his life, starting next week. But this is right before he goes to Jerusalem. He's getting his boys together, and he's trying to make them understand that there's a bigger war going on Than what they think is the biggest war is. Which is Jews versus Romans. That's what they were expecting the the Messiah to do. They believed Jesus to be the Messiah. And the expectation was that he's going to overthrow the Romans. That was the biggest war. That was the most important war. And Jesus is trying to show them. There's a bigger war going on. It's the war between pride and humility in the human heart. Pride is going to keep you from seeing me for who I am. Humility will open your eyes. Trying to be important and significant is going to blind you. Humbling yourself, it's gonna open your eyes. And the same is true today. The biggest war going on, it's not between Ukraine and Russia, it's not between the right and left, it's not between conservatives and progressives. The biggest war, the most important war, is in the human heart, your heart, between pride and humility. So we're gonna see that in these two stories of two mama's boys and two blind men. So let's jump into it. We're gonna start in Matthew twenty, verses seventeen. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So remember, 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 the expectation, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, conquers the Romans, and he's saying, guys, 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 For the third time, I'm going to Jerusalem and this is how it's going to go down. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be handed over. The religious leaders, the conservatives, are gonna hand me over to the secular government, the Romans, and together they're going to kill me. But then I'm gonna raise to life. I'm gonna raise to life. This is how my kingdom is going to be established. They didn't get it. It wasn't their expectation. In fact, for the Messiah to die would mean he's not the Messiah. There were other people who had claimed to be the Messiah. They died. They were clearly not the Messiah. So for Jesus to say, guys, this is how I'm going to establish my kingdom. I'm going to die. They, they couldn't grasp it. They couldn't fathom it. It'd be like somebody running for president, pulling his campaign advisors and, and, and you know, his team around him and say, guys, the best way for my policies to be pushed through is for me to lose this election. They'd be like, wait, what? huh? What are we doing all this work for? That's kind of how they would hear this. They didn't grasp it clearly because look what happens next. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons. That would be James and John. Their mother, uh, likely this would be Salome. So she comes with James and John, kneeling down, asks a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. She brings her two sons by to Jesus and she says, hey, hey, Jesus, Jesus. I got my two boys here. They've been working better and harder than all the other. The other ten? Peter, he's a slacker. I know he's he's impulsive. He gets a little aggressive sometimes. Thomas, he's really skeptical about everything. My boys are the loyal ones. So when you establish your political kingdom, when you overthrow the Romans, can James and John, can they be like vice president and chief of staff? They deserve it. They deserve it. Now she's she's well-meaning. She believes Jesus to be the Messiah. She shows reverence by kneeling. She just doesn't get what his kingdom's about. So she... She she appeals to Jesus based on what she thinks her boys deserve. It's kind of like that Little League mom, right? (laughs) Some of you already know. You already know. You've coached, you've coached, and you've had that. Or dad, the Little League dad too, right? Comes to the coach, 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 coach. My kids should be starting pitcher. They deserve it. They get all flustered. Gets all political, right? So how does Jesus respond to the mother? Does he say to the mother, you know what? You know what? You're right. You're right. These guys have been working really hard. Look what He says, "'You don't know what you're asking,' he said to them. "'Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? "'You don't know what you're asking for. "'The mother thinks she knows what she's asking for. "'She thinks she knows what's best for her kids. "'Parents, we don't always know what's best for our kids.'" Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Now, what's the cup referred to? In uh, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, those are two references to the cup of God's judgment that was going to be poured out on the wicked, on the evildoers, on the ones who were oppressing the vulnerable. God's judgment was prophesied. This was back in the Old Testament. Prophesied it would be poured out on the wicked. What does Jesus say here? The cup I'm going to drink. He's saying, I'm going to drink the cup of God's judgment. I'm going to absorb the curse of this world. Right? The world's broken. We can can agree to that, right? Jesus follower or not, you can at least agree this world is messed up. Well, Jesus claims to be the sponge that comes to absorb the mess, absorb the curse. On our behalf. That's what he's saying. That's why he needed to die. That's why he just said, I need to die and rise again. That's how my kingdom is going to be established. Because the biggest enemy is not the Roman Empire. The biggest enemy is the sin in our hearts. The pride in our hearts that causes us to say, I don't need you, God. I'm doing it my way. I'm self-sufficient. I can save myself. I'm good. That's what needs to be absorbed by Jesus. He had to pay for the sins of all humanity. The Romans, yes, and the Jews, and even his disciples right here. He needed to drink the cup of God's judgment, absorb the curse like an umbrella, absorbing the rain, and so that all who would take shelter under that umbrella would be rescued from it. That's what he needs to do. You know, it's possible that he's going to enter Jerusalem, which we'll, again, we'll talk about that next week. It's possible that he enters Jerusalem on the day that they select, lamb selection day, when they selected lambs for Passover. They selected the lambs, the spotless lambs, taken into the house for a few days before they kill it for the Passover. It's possible that Jesus would enter Jerusalem on that day as the ultimate sacrificial lamb who came to drink the cup of God's judgment for the guilty which includes all of us, which included James and John. So Jesus says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Look how confident they are. They're like, we can do whatever it takes to climb the Messiah ladder, right? We can do it. They're they're, they're ambitious little interns, right? They're like, we'll do whatever it takes. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. There will be suffering that you will endure. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. So again, he's like, you don't get it. Yes, I'm going to use you. You're going to have an impact for my kingdom. But it's not going to come through positions of authority and power, it's going to come through suffering and sacrifice. And you are actually going to endure some of the suffering that is similar to what I'm going to suffer because you follow me. James would, would be one of the first martyrs, he'd be killed, he'd be executed for his faith in Jesus. John would be exiled to the island of Patmos um, only after they tried to execute him. Church history tells us they tried to boil him in oil. He survived, so they sent him away. So Jesus says, you guys don't know what you're asking for, there's going to be suffering for you, James and John, but yeah, I'm going to use you, but your significance in my kingdom is going to come at the expense of worldly power and significance. And he corrects the mother's expectation. You don't know what you're asking for, all right? And it's just, a, just a, parents, maybe just pause and think, like, what do, we, what, what do we pray for for our kids? What do we want for our kids? Sometimes we need to have a little heart check and go, God, what, what am I really after for my kids? What is really best for my kids? Like, this passage always strikes me as a parent, like, with my girls. Like, hypothetically, I'm not saying we need to make this choice, and no, I need to make this choice, but hypothetically, would I rather one of my daughters get a scholarship to college, good grades, graduate, get a good job, gets married, gives us grandkids, lives close by, lives a relatively happy and easy life, all the while keeping Jesus on the back burner, saying, I don't really need him. Dad, I'm kind of tired of hearing about Jesus. I heard about it all my life. Eh, I don't really see a need for him. Would I rather that, or would I rather one of them goes on a mission trip to Japan, let's say, during during her college years, comes back, Mom, Dad, I'm going to drop out of college. I feel called to go to Japan, learn the language, Become a missionary there and she goes there and we see her once or twice a year. We talk over Zoom and then persecution breaks out and she gets martyred in her mid to late 20s without ever having a chance to be married or give us grandkids. If I had those two options, I'm not saying I have to choose, but if I had those two options, what would I want? This is a selfish part of me. It's like, I want option A. But what's more important to God and what's ultimately more fulfilling to her in the the scheme of eternity We think we know what we want sometimes. Sometimes for God to get a hold of our kids' hearts, right? They're going to go through some roller coaster things that we want to protect them from. And God's like, hey, you don't know what you're asking for. The best goal is for them to be sold out for me. Trust me, trust me, trust me. Anyway, that was a little bit of an aside for parents. Let's keep going. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. So they're like, are you serious? Did you hear what Jimmy and John just did? And they had their mama do it for them. Can you believe it? Now, these guys weren't indignant because James and John had impure motives and they had the right motives. They were indignant because they all had the wrong motives. And James and John and their mama only said what the rest of them were thinking. They shouldn't deserve that. I should deserve it. No, no, you don't deserve it. they going back and forth. So Jesus realizes it. And now, by the way, I bet Jesus, I don't know this for sure, but I bet at this point... Remember what has just happened. Jesus told them, I'm going to die and rise again. James and John are like, anyway, when your kingdom comes, can I be right and left? Right? The 10 get started arguing. I bet Jesus is like, okay, okay. One more time, you guys. Come here. Jesus called them together and says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, that would be those who don't worship Yahweh, the one God of Israel, you know that those Gentile rulers lord it over each other. And their high officials exercise authority over them. They take advantage of their power. They have to remind everybody that they're powerful. They have to have the symbols of status. They have to have everybody opening the doors for them. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Reminding them that they, they have power. He's saying, you know that's how things roll out there in the world. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So she's like, guys, 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 guys. The world out there is after significance and power and positions of authority. They want to get the accolades. They want to get the praise. They want to get the respect that they think they're entitled to. It's not supposed to be like that in my kingdom, you guys. You're not supposed to even, uh, you know, show me your resume and say, look how much I've been serving you. Look how much I've been doing for you. Therefore, I deserve X, Y, and Z. It's like, that's not how it's supposed to roll with you guys. You got to be willing to be treated as a servant, treated as a slave. Now, you guys... All of us. We need to hear this, right? Because we think of serving as, I'm willing to serve. That's not what Jesus is saying. you got to be willing to be treated like a servant. It's different. I can volunteer to put chairs away, and people say, wow, look at the servant over there putting the chairs away. It's different when somebody says, hey, who's not that important around here? Oh, Chris, you go put the chairs away. Then something starts to rise up in my back, right? Like, Whoa, wait a second. Wait a second. Right? Our culture tells us, you fight for what you deserve. You fight for what you're entitled to. You volunteer, but you only volunteer when people appreciate you and give you pats on the back for volunteering, right? Even in families, even in families, right? We got people, I mean, listen, we all got family members. Maybe we're some of those family members. Sometimes maybe I am. Where It's like we're the doers. We got to do everything, do everything, fix everything. But we want people to say, wow, what would we do without you? We want that, right? We can't just be. We can't just sit. We can't just be a nobody for a moment. Even in our volunteering, we have to out-volunteer other family members. Out-serve them. Be the most responsible ones. Be known as the most responsible ones. Be the one that's going to have all the best advice. We want those reputations. And Jesus is saying, guys, 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 it's not supposed to be like that. You should be willing to serve in obscurity. You should be willing to uh, be misunderstood sometimes and still love anyway. Seek to understand the other before you're seeking to be understood. This is what it means to follow me. This is what I'm doing. The son of man, he's talking about himself, did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom. That word for ransom has the idea of buying the freedom of a slave. Ransom, paid for a slave. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this, a ransom in that world is what someone might pay to give freedom to a slave. Jesus saw his approaching fate as the payment that would set free those who were enslaved in sin and wickedness. Not least those who are in the grips of the lust for power and position. Yes, people like James and John. So Jesus is saying, I'm a ransom for the sins of everyone, including you, James and John who are after your own power and significance. I came to pay for it all. you got to be willing to serve. you got to be willing to be treated like a servant, treated like less than, and be okay with it. Why? why? Why would we be okay with it? Because we belong to the king of the universe. Right? We don't need other people to esteem us highly when we belong to the king of the universe. And Jesus said... Give his life as a ransom for many. See the end of verse 28, give his life. He doesn't, he doesn't say it's taken from him. He's giving it. Everything that's about to go down in Jerusalem, his death, his suffering, is him giving his life. That's how he sees it. That's how he's predicting it to be for them. I'm, I'm giving my life as a ransom for many. Those who make the most significant impact for God's kingdom are those who do not need to be significant in this world. That's what he's trying to get in their heads you guys don't need positions of power and authority. I'm not going to overthrow the Roman Empire. That's not how my kingdom's going to be established. And you guys, you're not going to make a difference for me if you're constantly worried about who thinks what of you, who's respecting you, who's appreciating you. Die to it. Die to it. Die to it. Put it to death. That's your pride, and it's going to blind you. Now, that's the end of one passage. Right after that, flowing right after that, before they head to Jerusalem, look what happens. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. They know he's going to Jerusalem. So they're like, oh, it's about to go down. It's about to go down. That's what's what's happening here. Verse 30. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. So these blind men would be like beggars. They're probably there often getting changed. Give us money. Give us money. But they hear that Jesus is going by. They call out to him, Lord, Son of David. This is a reference to his messianic title. He is the Messiah in their minds. They're recognizing that he is the Lord. That he is the promised heir to the throne of David. They're recognizing that as blind men. They probably heard stories of him healing. Healing the lame. Healing the centurion. We've talked a lot about his healing miracles. They probably heard these stories and said, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, notice they say, have mercy on us. They don't appeal to what they deserve. They haven't really been doing much for Jesus. They've been sitting on the road, doing nothing. They just cry out for mercy. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. So the crowd's like, yo, guys, keep it down. This is an important man. He's going to do important things. Right? I mean, think the inauguration day in Washington, D.C., and some homeless gi- guys trying to get the attention of the president. People are like, yo, sh- secret service, Shh. keep this guy away. We've got a schedule to keep. It's kind of the idea here. Jesus is too important to stop for these two blind beggars that everybody's used to anyway, right? But they kept shouting all the louder, Lord, have David, uh, Lord, son of David, have, have mercy on us. Why? Because they didn't care what people thought of him. They weren't too proud to worry about how dignified they look. They're just like, all the louder. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. And what does Jesus do? Verse 32, Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He stops. The whole crowd has to stop. Everybody puts on the brakes. And he looks at them. These two blind beggars, these two nobodies, who've done nothing for him, and he looks at them. He says, "Hey, what do you want me to do for you?" This struck me this couple last couple weeks. Just every time I read it, it's like, man, Jesus looking at you, looking at me. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Where are you stuck? Where are you hurting? Where is there something choking you? What do you want me to do? Lord, they answer, "We want our sight." We want to see. We want to see. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. So their eyes are healed. They can see. And the first thing they do, we're going with you. We're going with you. We're going with you, Jesus, son of David, Lord. We're following you. Now this story, this is obviously an example of a physical healing miracle that Jesus did. And like I said, we've talked about that uh, much in this series so far. Jesus steps in to our broken situations. He he brings healing, intervention, provision where there's lack. But this week, this also stood out to me as, as such a contrast to James and John. Jesus, um, throughout all the Gospels, often talked about um, uh, faith in him, trust in him, as having eyes to see. And to not know who Jesus is, to not believe in Jesus, is to be blind. And it was just a reminder to me that this is what Jesus does for all of us. He opens our spiritual eyes so we could follow him. And pride is what blinds us to following him. Even those of us like James and John who think we're following him, but we're following him with the wrong set of expectations, with the wrong idea of who he is and what he's going to give us. We're following behind him all the while going, well, Jesus, look at what I did now. And look what I did just now. And look what I did now for you. While the blind men are just saying, have mercy on us. We're nobodies. And Jesus stopped and he gave them what they wanted. And James and John needed to be corrected. So we're going to receive communion in a moment. Um, Everybody should have gotten one of these uh, cups. If you didn't get one, put your hand up and the ushers will put it in your hands. Um, if you're receiving it with us, if you're, if you're not a believer in Jesus or you have questions about him, listen, please don't feel any pressure to receive this. We often have people in here who are like, no, no, I'm not comfortable doing that. We don't want you to do anything out of, without uh, having a sincere heart. It just, we feel phony, right? So don't, don't, you don't want to do that. We don't want to pressure you to do that. But if you're a follower of Jesus, even if you're from another church, we'd love for you to do this with us. We do this once a month. But before we receive this, before you even open it, I just want us to think about and reflect on, what what is this? What does this mean? Jesus told us, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Remembering my sacrifice. The cracker represents his body given to be killed. His blood spilled. The juice represents the blood spilled. What he has just been talking about. His life given as a ransom for many. And so as we prepare to receive this together, I want to walk through three points for us to just think about. That I pull from this these two passages. And if you wanna just, I don't know, jot them down or just whatever it takes so that you can maybe reflect on them later, take a photo of the screen. But number one, before we receive communion, ask Jesus for what you need. But not based on your resume, based on his mercy. Not based on your resume don't go in prayer to god and say i need this be, but you should give it to me because i had a really good week last week with my addiction or i had a really good week you know i was really kind to people and i gave money to that charity so therefore god can you please no 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 no, follow the blind men not the mama's boys out of his mercy jesus out of your mercy out of your mercy you 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 made a sacrifice for me so that i can come boldly the bible says boldly to his throne of grace And ask for, hey, God, I need this. I need this. What do you need right now? you need peace to flood your heart because it's filled with chaos and anxiety? Ask for it. What do you need? You need provision in an area. You need healing, physical healing, psychological healing. Jesus, help me. My my marriage, Jesus, out of your mercy, out of your mercy, out of your mercy. You know, that's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. To pray in Jesus' name, means we are laying down our report cards. I'm not coming to you based on my performance. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's really bad. I'm coming to you in Jesus' name, the one who died and rose again on my behalf. And because of what he's accomplished for me, because of his straight A report card that he allows me to bring to God the Father, I'm saying, can you give me this? Can you meet me in my place of need right now? That's number one. Number two, we don't need to feel important. We need to see Jesus. There is a deception in the human heart, and the world fans the flame, and our American culture especially pours gasoline on that flame that says, in order for me to be happy, I need to feel important. In order for me to feel happy, I need my self-esteem to be boosted constantly. I need my ego to be constantly stroked. I need my kids to constantly show how much they appreciate what I'm doing for them. And my spouse to see all the ways I'm serving them around the house. I need my boss to give me the promotion I deserve. That's the world we live in. That's the hearts we're born with. And Jesus says, hey, I'm giving you power when you trust in me by my spirit to put that to death and trust that the only, what you really need is eyes to see me for who I am. We don't need a big self-esteem. We need a big God-esteem. When God is big in our eyes, everything else feels small. Even what other people think of us feels small. Status feels small. Positions of authority is small. It's puny when God is big. C.S. Lewis, I think it was C.S. Lewis. I'm not sure. Uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, "Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not beating yourself up, wallowing in shame. That's not humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You're just you're not even thinking about yourself that much. You're just focused on Jesus and what He's done for you. And that's where there's joy, and that's where there's fulfillment. Don't fall into the trap. And this communion is a reminder: He died so that we could die to the need to be important, to the need to be respected." and appreciated, and He lives, He rose from the dead so we could live, so we could step every day into the fullness of life that He paid for. And finally, number three, this is in the form of a question, where is pride keeping you from taking your next step with Jesus? Where we all have a next step with Jesus, and we are all prone to pride. And pride is going to keep us from taking that next step. Whether you have never trusted in Jesus before or you've been following Jesus for 30 years, pride is going to keep you from taking your next step with Jesus. Maybe you're at the place where you just need to admit, man, I am broken. I look good on the outside, but I admit I'm broken. I need a Savior. I need, I need someone who paid for me. I need that ransom that he paid for. A savior who's going to love me unconditionally. No matter my mistakes that I made in the past. No matter my mistakes in the future. But pride will keep you from admitting that. Pride will keep you feeling like, I got to keep up a front to people. Maybe your next step is to, you thought you've been following Jesus, but really you've been following like the Santa Claus, genie in a bottle version of Jesus. A call on him when I'm in a hardship, when I'm in a foxhole kind of thing, but... No, 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 Jesus, I'm ready to make you my king. Like, you can govern my life. Maybe those of you who've been following Jesus, but pride's keeping you from admitting that, man, you're struggling in some areas, and you need to admit that to others. I've heard from a couple people recently who um, had to admit to their loved ones, I'm, I've been struggling a, with some addictive behaviors that I've been pretending like I haven't been struggling with. And They had to come clean on that. They had to swallow their pride and allow Jesus' healing to come into that. Maybe it's apologizing to someone that you've hurt and asking for forgiveness. And you think, you know what, why should I apologize? They haven't apologized to me. You know what, I'm I'm 10% wrong, but they're 90% wrong. Swallow your pride and own your 10%. Maybe you need to apologize to someone for unforgiveness, for bitterness that's consumed you. Maybe there's a sin in your life that you need to take more seriously. And maybe there's a sin in someone else's life that you need to take less seriously. And pride will reverse it, right? I can't believe what they're doing. Me, I've got some minor personality defects, right? Maybe we need to admit that God is in control, and so we need to stop trying to be in control. I don't know what the next step is for everyone. For me, I've I've realized one area for me is to, when I sense that there's uh, somebody's misunderstanding me or falsely accusing me, I gotta stop trying to fix that perception and be okay being misunderstood or falsely accused. Sometimes that can rile me up. I was telling somebody recently, That can get me. I got to lay that down. Jesus was willing to be misunderstood and falsely accused all the way to the cross. All right? Maybe for some of you, last example is baptism. Get baptized, jump in to our next baptism whenever that is. There's a sense in which some people say, you know what, yeah, I've got this me and Jesus thing going on, but I don't want to go public with it. I don't want to say anything with my mouth. I don't want to obey him in that next step of taking the sacrament of baptism. And there's people around the world who are going into the waters of baptism knowing that that public statement means there's a target on their back and they could be killed. And sometimes in America, we're like, mm, I just don't really want to get wet and have people looking at me, right? It's like, hey, we got to swallow our pride. Whatever our next step of obedience is, say, hey, no, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about how people see me. It's not about me being in control of this. Jesus, you're king. You're king, and I'll do whatever you're asking. Because the last thing I'll say, whatever he asks us to do, it often is uncomfortable, Right? It feels sometimes like a kind of death. But what does he invite us into? A resurrection on the other side of that. And wherever there's a layer of pride that needs to be put down, there's another piece of this fullness of life that he came to give us on the other side of it. Spiritual growth, in other words, goes hand in hand with growing in our joy and our peace and our fulfillment. They go together, they're not opposed to each other. So, band, come on up here. We're going to sing a song about King Jesus. I want you to reflect on this last question. What is your next step? Where is pride keeping you from taking that next step? And then at some point in the middle of the song, um, we're, we're gonna receive the communion elements together.